Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. In all our lectures thus far, we have seen the world from the viewpoint of classical dimensions. We have started with one-dimensional knots, two-dimensional surfaces, three-dimensional manifolds, four-dimensional polytopes, and higher dimensions in terms of configuration spaces. Now, are there objects in nature that do not fit so nicely in the framework that we've created? But what about these objects like snowflakes, crystals, clouds, ferns, coastlines, cauliflower, and lightning? For example, let's just take a look at lightning, the, the shape of lightning. Notice that lightning is not one dimension, it's not a line, but yet, but it's not two-dimensional either. It's um, stuck somewhere in between. It doesn't cover up an entire plane of possibilities, nor is it simply, uh, nor is it simply a description of, of just a straight line that, that we can understand. So today we study the mathematical framework that allows us to capture this notion of the in-between. Our work in this world begins with the, with the idea of chaos. Chaos is the behavior of certain systems, for example, weather patterns, that are highly sensitive to the initial data. Sometimes called the butterfly effect, it describes how small changes in weather systems today can have drastic changes in weather a week from now. And we start with simple tools in order to construct elegant, chaotic systems to understand them and to, and to see them behave. And this leads to the idea of self-similarity, focusing on some of the extreme shapes found in nature, such as snowflakes, ferns, and lightning. Indeed, if we look at lightning again, if you look at the crack of lightning and zoom in to a part of that lightning bolt strike, you see another entire lightning in it. You see this idea of self-similarity. It looks like the entire object if you look at a piece of it. And this is the same for all of these objects I described. Each of these objects have the property that part of its shape looks like the whole. Now we close this lecture with an understanding of dimension from a fresh perspective, from the world of fraction, excuse me, from the world of fractal dimensions. Now we begin with a historical viewpoint of dynamics, of motion. Now both chaos and dynamics are very closely related to one another. Dynamics is the study of motion and change. Now, from this motion comes chaotic behavior. Probably the most famous example of a problem in dynamics is the n-body problem. It's made famous by the work of Isaac Newton. Here we are given a set of data which represent the positions, masses, and velocities of n objects. For Newton, these objects were planets and other heavenly bodies, and for us, they can be particles in motion. Now, what do I mean? You're given the position, you're given the mass, and you're given the velocity, how fast and the direction they're going to be traveling for all of these different objects. Now that's what you're given as the starting position. But given Newton's laws of motion and gravity, he tells us exactly what motion and gravity are about. We have an equation which then describes the motion of these objects. And if we can solve this equation, then we can predict where the objects will be at any given time. We can look into the future. For example, let's just take one object. Imagine I have a baseball in my hand. And I know if I throw it and I release it right here, I know the position of the baseball, I know the velocity in which it's going to travel, and the direction, the speed in which it's going to go, and I know the mass of the baseball. 
Well, if I know those things, according to Newton's laws of motion and gravity, we know exactly where the ball is going to be in time. Unfortunately, it turns out we can only solve this equation, this super equation of future prediction for one body, for example, like a baseball, or for two bodies. Even for three bodies, it turns out that nobody knows how to do this today. It is an open problem. And anything more than three is extremely difficult. Now, the reason this is difficult is due to gravitational interactions. Each object isn't going in its own way. If I have three objects, they're not just doing their own thing. They're actually interacting with one another. There's a gravitational pull. If each of these represents stars in the solar system, then you see this gravitational pull from one to the other one. Now, one feature of the n-body problem is the appearance of chaos. Now, to understand what chaos is about, we look at the story of Edward Lorenz. Now, Lorenz was a math graduate student at Harvard who became a meteorologist at MIT in about the 1960s. And at that time, he was running a very primitive computer program for weather prediction. Here's what happened. He wrote down, as his program was running, he wrote down an intermediate result at one point. He wanted to stop the program and, and come back later and, and see what happened. So he just wrote down an intermediate result. He came back the next day and he started his calculations again using this intermediate result that he had written down. And he noticed something very unusual. Things became completely different from using his intermediate result than from letting the program keep running. In other words, instead of stopping the program, writing the result and plugging it back into the program and letting it go, if you had just let the program go, you would come up with completely different results. One would give you an amazingly sunny day the next day, and the other would give you an intensely rainy day. Why? They're both using the same value system. One just stops and then starts the computer again as you plug in the intermediate result, and the other keeps going. Why should there be a difference? And it turns out rounding off error is the problem. His writing down an intermediate result, he didn't write down the entire long number. He actually rounded up just a little bit. He, he made it a little shorter. And this small rounding off error caused an immense change in the weather. He noticed that simple differential equations could have very sensitive dependence to these initial conditions of where they start. This is called the butterfly effect. A small butterfly in Brazil flapping its wings today could actually powerfully impact the weather system three weeks from now. It could create a hurricane because of its small change. But today, this is an immense field of study, and I am actually doing a great disservice by condensing an entire field into one lecture. But I wanted you to have a taste of this world from the perspective of shape. Now, it is not only in weather patterns that chaotic behavior is observed. It has been noted in mathematical biology, such as in population dynamics, and even in the beating of the human heart. Even the motion of Pluto, formerly a planet, seems to exhibit this kind of chaotic behavior. So, what does chaos mean from a mathematical viewpoint? Well, let's consider a very simple and naive model of a weather system. This is really a bad one, but it's simple enough for us to grasp. Here's what it is. I have a function f of x equals x plus 2, which means if we give it our current temperature x, this function, this machine f of x, will give us tomorrow's temperature. So f of x equals x plus 2. So if today's temperature is 3, I plug it into the machine, tomorrow's temperature is 5. Then tomorrow's temperature is 5, I plug it into the machine, the temperature after that is 7. 
See, this is how the machine works. It's a machine that tells us the next day's temperature given the current temperature. So what should we do to get the weather three days from now? We take our weather today, we plug it in, and then we plug it in, and then we plug it in. We keep plugging it in. Iterating is the mathematical terminology. We iterate this function over and over again to get future predictions. Now, based on this, we get several important concepts. The first is that the orbit of a point under a function is what happens to it as we continue to iterate. For example, the orbit of the point 1 under our function is that 1 becomes, well, x plus 2 is our function, f of x equals x plus 2. 1 becomes 3, which becomes 5, which becomes 7, which becomes 9, and that's the orbit. You see where it's going during the entire step. Well, the most important type of orbit is a fixed point. A fixed point is one which never changes under iteration. Now, we've already seen fixed points with respect to wind flows on surfaces. These are the places where there's no wind or no change. Now, what about f of x equals x plus 2? Is there a place that if we iterate, we actually get fixed points, and it turns out there are no fixed points? No matter what value you plug in, this function always adds 2 to it. So thus, it's always moving further and further, and there's never a place it stops. But consider the following functions. Here we have y equals x squared. And notice this function has two fixed points. Zero is a fixed point. Why? If I plug in zero, and if I square it, zero squared is zero. Well, I take that answer, I plug it back in. Zero squared is zero, and, zero, and it stays there. No matter what happens, as I look at the orbit of what happens to zero, it doesn't move. It's fixed. Well, what about one? Well, one squared is one. One squared is one, and that squared is one. And you see one is also another fixed point. So this function f of x equals x squared has two fixed points. Well, what about the function f of x equals x cubed? Well, here we have three fixed points. Zero is a fixed point. Zero cubed is zero. One is a fixed point. One cubed is one. But now we have negative one is also a fixed point. Negative one cubed is negative one. And this cubed is negative one. And you see the orbit just stays around these points. In fact, there is an elegant geometric viewpoint of iterations which we can do to understand fixed points. Let's consider an example. Let's look at the function f of x equals x plus 2 again. Here we see this function, and what we want to do is we want to graph our function f of x as shown here, and the line y equals x. Now this line is going to act as a, as a mirror to what our function is going to do. We're going to bounce off ideas of this y equals x line with our function to understand what iterations and orbits are about. So what we do is we start at the y equals x line over the point of interest. Say we want to understand what happens when we start at x equals 1. Say that's the place that we're interested in. Remember, x equals 1 represents today's weather. In a, in a simplified model like this, x equals 1 is what is happening now. And we want to know, according to this weather prediction machine, f of x equals x plus 2, what our weather is going to look like. But now I want to do this visually. So I take my point, x equals 1, and I put it at the y equals x line. This is the point 1 comma 1. Now the next thing I do is I follow a vertical line from this point until my function is reached. And when I do this, vertically I get the point 1 comma 3. Now from this point I follow a horizontal line until my y equals x line is reached. This becomes 3 comma 3. Now notice, my 1 comma 1 point went to 3 comma 3. So basically my 1 went to 3. Notice what happens. This is the orbit starting. And I can do this again. I can go from 3, 3, 2, 3 comma 5 to 5 comma 5. And I can keep repeating this up and across, up and across, iterating this thing. 
And this forms a cobweb-like diagram which shows the orbit visually from our starting point x equals 1. Now, let's consider another function, f of x equals x cubed. Again, we graph our function f of x and our function y equals x, that line y equals x. Now notice this is three fixed points that we talked about earlier, 0, 1, and negative 1. Indeed, these three fixed points appear as the places where my function intersects my y equals x line. Notice, at those points, I cannot go up and across anymore. I'm already there. Both worlds meet, thus the fixed points. Now look at any points after x equals 1. Anything after that fixed point x equals 1, say x equals 2. Look what happens. I start at the y equals x line. I go up and across, up and across, and look, I just go off to infinity. It just flies away. Similarly, all the points below x equals negative 1, less than x equals negative 1, from that fixed point, if I look at any point at y equals x, I go down and across, down and across, and notice, it goes off to infinity. But the points between negative 1 and 1, all the points there, if I start at the y equals x line and go vertically, horizontally, vertically, horizontally, they all collide towards 0. Thus, we can visually understand these orbits. And just like fixed points on wind flows, we see that the fixed points here come in different flavors, come in different kinds. For example, the x equals 1 and the x equals negative 1 fixed points repel. Notice any points near there, just sometimes they go off to infinity and sometimes they go to zero, but they never come towards each other, towards these fixed points. They're repelling fixed points. On the other hand, x equals 0, you see, is an attracting fixed point. Any particles near there, as we start iterating the function, just make the particles collide towards x equals 0. Things seem to be going well for us, and it's beautiful. It seems we have a strong grasp on what is going on. Unfortunately, it turns out this is far from true. Let's turn to a simple function yet again, and by doing so, we enter the world of chaos. Now, consider the following example. f of x equals x squared minus 3. That's it. It's that simple. f of x equals x squared minus 3. Let's graph the function. And let's graph the y equals x line. It's going to look something like this. Notice this has two fixed points, both of which are repelling fixed points. It's easy to check they repel. Now call them points P here and Q here. Now here's the simple question I'm going to ask. Can you find the set of starting points, the initial values we need to plug into the function, which, which do not go to infinity, whose orbits do not go to infinity? Consider the interval negative p to p. Consider that interval, right? p is one of your fixed points. Go from p all the way to negative p and make this following box you see here. Now, we can see that any starting value outside of this interval must go off to infinity. For example, if I pick a value like 3, which is outside this box, look what happens. I start at the y equals x line. I go up and across, up and across, and it just flies off to infinity. And similarly, if I look at the value negative 3, I start at the y equals x line. Then I go up, and then I go across, and up and across, and again, it flies off to infinity. Now, this is a great first step. We've eliminated all the points outside this box because they all go to infinity. I'm trying to find the places that don't go to infinity. Well, these huge clusters of infinite number of points get thrown away because they're not what we're interested in. So there's another way we can look at this question. Let's rephrase this question. Let's find the set of starting points that do go to infinity. I'm feeling kind of bad because I haven't found one yet. So if I change the question, I might make myself feel a little better. So now I found tons of points that go to infinity. 
And now let's look over at what's left over to see if there's any points that actually don't go. Let's try to find the points which actually go off to infinity. Let's see what happens. Now consider this interval here that I've labeled I1. Now notice, this is the interval formed by all the points down here from the function that lands outside of my box. And notice what happens if I take any points on my interval as my starting position, and if I do my vertical and then my horizontal, look what happens in my first iteration already. If I do my vertical and horizontal, I'm already out of the box. And then if I keep doing vertical and horizontal over and over again, these particles go off to infinity. All these points leave and they go to infinity quickly. So the entire interval I1 goes to infinity, and all the points outside of my box goes to infinity, so does everything go to infinity? Well, notice the endpoints of this interval. They don't go to infinity. Look what happens. If I look at this endpoint of this interval, I draw a vertical line, and then I go horizontal, and then I do vertical. Remember, I'm trying to build my uh, cobweb structure, and then I do horizontal, and look, I land at P. P is a fixed point. So the endpoint, this endpoint, lands at P. Look, let's look at the other endpoint. This drops down, and then I go across, and then I go up, and I go across, and that lands at P also. And once you're at P, once it's a fixed point, it's going to stay there. Remember, P can't go anywhere. It's a fixed value. So thus, although the interior of the interval goes to infinity, the boundaries of the interval, those two points, stay fixed. They don't go to infinity at all. The orbits are finite. So what about the points which get sent to our interval I1? Notice here, I have two intervals. I'm going to label both of them as I2. Any points on this interval, if I do a vertical and a horizontal as I build my cobweb, they get sent to I1. But what do we do if we iterate again? Well, I1 gets sent out, and the out goes to infinity, which means all the points in I2 also go to infinity. In one iteration, they go to I1. And in another iteration, they leave the box. But notice the endpoints of I2 get sent to the endpoints of I1. So this endpoint right here gets sent here, this one gets sent here, this one gets sent here, and this one gets sent here. The endpoints go to the endpoints of I1, but the endpoints of I1 do not go to infinity. So now we are starting to build a collection of points that actually stabilize, that don't go off to infinity. We can keep doing this. Now, a few things to consider. Each time we do this, there are twice as many intervals as before. And inside all these intervals, all the points go to infinity. But the boundary of these intervals, the endpoints of these intervals, all remain finite. And this, my friends, is chaotic behavior. Because if you are exactly on an endpoint of these intervals, then life stabilizes. Because you know exactly where you're going and it becomes finite. But if you just move a little bit on either side of that interval, things go to infinity. A simple flap of a butterfly's wings is enough to push you over, and you get into a chaotic behavior. It doesn't smoothly transition from nice to chaotic. It goes intensely from one point being finite, orbit stays, to one touch over, and you're blown away, and you just go to infinity. So our simple function, x squared minus 3, well, that has chaotic behavior. But I still haven't answered the question, what is the answer at the end of the day? Well, at the end of the day, which points do go and stay in a finite realm rather than go to infinity? To understand this, we must enter the world of fractals. And we start with the construction of the classic Cantor set. Let's take a look. 
The Cantor set starts with an interval, zero to one interval, and I remove the middle of that interval, the middle third of that interval. I take one third to two thirds out. And then I'm, I have two separate intervals. Now I do the same procedure again. I iterate this magical visual way of thinking about it in terms of removals. I remove the middle third of this one, the one ninth to two ninth interval, and I remove the middle third of this one, the seven ninth to eight ninth. And now I have four intervals, and I repeat this process over and over again, keeping removing these middle parts of the interval. At the end of the day, at the limit, when I do this forever, I get the Cantor set. Note that each iteration, we have twice as many intervals as before. In fact, this is exactly the procedure that's going on with the x squared minus three. And indeed, the set of elements, which do not go to infinity for my x squared minus three, look exactly like the Cantor set. So what is the Cantor set? What's left over at the end of the day? Well, using analysis, not combinatorics, not algebra, but analysis, a branch of mathematics, we can prove the following theorem. After all the iterations, the Cantor set contains no intervals at all. You just have a collection of points, disjoint points. But moreover, there turn out to be an uncountable number of these points. In other words, mathematically, a huge number of points left over. So we see chaos. For a function as simple as x squared minus three, we see an intense chaotic behavior. For points that are stable and points that are unstable, an uncountable number of them stabilize and an uncountable number of them become unstable. We also see fractals here, objects which have a high level of self-similarity. For example, notice the fractal behavior with the Cantor set. We have this entire set, we remove the third, and if we keep removing it, as we zoom into part of the Cantor set, as you can see here, it looks like the entire set again. As we zoom in, it looks like the whole thing. We see fractals in nature, such as snowflakes, where we zoom in, we see the whole snowflake parts again. Ferns, cauliflowers, as we zoom into a part, we see a whole. And for us to study fractals, we need to look at a little bit more examples. Let's take a look. Let's consider two more fractals which are extremely famous. The first is the Sierpinski Triangle. Here's what it looks like. Similar to the Cantor set, this fractal can be built from infinite removals. We start with an equilateral triangle. We remove the middle third triangle right here, the upside down one. Then we're left with three triangles. We remove the middle pieces from here. And we're left with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine triangles. Now we remove the middle pieces from here. If we keep iterating this procedure, we get at the end, in the limit, the Sierpinski triangle. Notice the fractal nature of this set. As we zoom into one part, it looks like the whole. Now the last example of a fractal to consider is Koch's snowflake. Now instead of removing elements, this time we focus on infinite additions. We start with the perimeter of an equilateral triangle, and now remove the middle line segments from these. But instead of just me removing them, I'm gonna throw in two more line segments of equal length there. So I'm gonna remove the middle ones, and I'm gonna throw in two more to form this kind of six-sided star shape at my first iteration. And then I have all of these small line segments there. I do the same procedure. I remove the middle third of those line segments, and I insert two more of equal length. And here's my next iteration and my next iteration. If I keep doing this, I get caught a snowflake. Now this snowflake has an amazing property. It has finite area, but it has infinite perimeter. It turns out, what does this mean for us? It means that you can buy a carpet to cover the area of this snowflake, but it will take an infinite amount of fencing to block off the perimeter. What a beautiful property. It's a snowflake 
that has finite area but infinite perimeter. And it turns out this is mathematically easy to prove. Thus far, we have tasted a bit of the world of fractals, the idea of self-similarity. But as mathematicians, we want to measure this level of self-similarity. We just don't want to say it exists, we want to quantify it. But how? But one notion we have used is the idea of dimension. This is how we started these series of lectures. Dimension gave us a way of quantifying objects to say, ah, this object, the circle, is one-dimensional, but the sphere is two-dimensional. It helped us at least to distinguish these objects in a meta level, in a bigger picture setting. So what is the dimension of these objects? Let's think about the Cantor set. Now the Cantor set is clearly not one-dimensional. You don't get an entire line. In fact, you don't have any intervals at all. You just have a collection of points. But it also, at the same time, doesn't feel zero-dimensional. It's not like you just have three points. You have an uncountable number of points. That's a lot. So, so it's somewhere between zero and one. Similarly, the Sierpinski triangle does not feel two-dimensional. It's, it's not a flat object on the plane that is entirely taking up area. But, but it's also not one-dimensional. It's made up of a triangle, a two-dimensional thing that you've removed. It feels somewhere between a line and a plane. As we consider these radically new objects, a radical new concept of dimension itself is needed. Now, something we defined in the very first few lectures now needs to be redefined as we come to the end of these lectures. Now, to redefine, def excuse me, to redefine dimension for fractals, we need to think about the world of self-similarity again. And there are two concepts in this world that are extremely important to us. The first concept is the number of copies. How many copies of self-similar sets does our fractal yield? And the second one is magnification. What is the magnification level of each such set? So let's see how these concepts appear in our work. So here, for our Cantor set, look what happens. If we look at the Cantor set at the end, at the final limit, notice that I can zoom into a part of the Cantor set and I get a magnification level of three. I need to zoom in three times as much because one piece of it is three times as big as the entire Cantor set. But how many copies do I have when I zoom in? I have this copy on the left and I have a copy on the right. So if I magnify my Cantor set three times, I get these two copies at the end of the day that form the Cantor set with a magnification level of three. Let's look at the Sierpinski triangle. Here, you can see that there are three copies of the, of the smaller Sierpinski triangle, which can be magnified as big as the original. So the number of copies of a Sierpinski triangle is three, and the magnification level is two. Because if you take one of those copies, if I magnify it double, if I make it twice as big, I get the entire Sierpinski triangle. Similarly, if I take one piece of the Cantor set and I make it three times as big, I get the entire Cantor set. Now, what about Koch's snowflake? Here, notice, if I just look at one edge, just for detail, then you see that there are four copies in that one edge. Remember, we broke that edge, took the middle third, and replaced it with two other objects? So there are four objects now. So the number of copies is four, but the magnification level is just three, because it's just a third of the piece that I had before. And this level of self-similarity appears in classical geometric objects as well. It doesn't have to be just for fractal-like objects that are, that are complex that we've seen. Take a look. Look at the line segment. I can take a line segment, break it into three pieces. The number of copies I get of the big original line segment is three, and the magnification level I need to do is three. So the copies are three, magnification is three. And look at the square. I can break it into nine pieces. I get nine copies of the original square, 
but I need to magnify each of those squares three times to get the original thing. Copy is nine, magnification three. A cube similarly has copies 27 if I shatter it this way, and the magnification level again is three. Indeed, I could have picked any magnification level for these objects, it doesn't have to be three. I just chose it for a level of consistency. Now we use these notions to create something called the fractal dimension. Now fractal dimension of a set is defined as follows. The logarithm of the copy divided by the logarithm of the magnification. It's that simple. So let's check to see if this is worthy of the word dimension. Look at the dimension of a line segment. It's the logarithm of three copies divided by the logarithm of three magnifications. Log three over log three is one. So the dimension of a line segment is one. It's exactly right. What about the square? The logarithm of the copy is, well, it's three squared, it's nine, divided by the logarithm of the magnification, which is three. But the property of the log is if you have something squared, you can move it to the front. This is a mathematical property. So this becomes two times log three over log three. Well, this is two. Dimension of the square is two, perfect. And the cube, it's log of 27 copies divided by magnification three, but 27 is just three cubed. And I can move the three out in the front. This becomes three times log three over log three, which is just three. Perfect. Now let's apply this idea to our objects that we've been struggling with. For the Sierpinski triangle, I have logarithm of three copies divided by logarithm of two magnification, which is a dimension of 1.584. It's a fractal dimension, a fractional dimension between these worlds, between dimension one and two. Koch's snowflake gives us log four divided by log three, a dimension of 1.261. Beautiful. And what about the Cantor set? We want this to be not zero dimensional and not one dimensional somewhere there. Well, we had two copies and three magnification. That's log two divided by log three, which is 0.6309. Beautiful. Logarithm handles the concept of scale perfectly. We have covered numerous ideas today which appear in nature. These ideas are hard to capture with classical notions of shape. We studied the chaotic nature of iterating functions, which model ideas such as weather patterns, population dynamics, and even the motion of Pluto. And we also consider the natural appearances of fractals in iterations, which appear in numerous places in nature, such as crystal plants and coastlines. But I believe most importantly, we pushed our classical understanding of dimension into the realm of fractal dimension. And as we come near the end of our lectures, we turn next not to the intersection of mathematics with the natural sciences, but with the arts. Stay tuned.